if you're going to put the time and energy into a practice, then you should flip it around and start with what your goals are. What do you actually want this to achieve? And then go back and choose the practices that are going to actually take you down that road of what you want to achieve. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create a new future for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Sherlock. Catherine reached out to me, and we started a conversation. And we then decided to explore live on a recorded podcast. And so we are about to discover how this conversation would unfold for us. Catherine works with leaders who see a bigger picture, where leadership is about becoming and showing up as your best self to ignite the best in others, and where higher mindfulness is about creating a more profound connection inside your ecosystem to unlock possibilities and empower higher levels of performance from a place of wholeness and inner peace. God knows we need these capacities now. Catherine, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. It's great to be here with you. So let's dive in. And let me ask you, when you reflect on the various facets and roles in the totality of your work, what do you enjoy most? What I enjoy most is breakthroughs. It's really helping people see the world in a new way that kind of frees up new behaviors or new possibilities. That's my favorite. And when you talk about breakthroughs, Can you say a little more how you observe what is in the portfolio of breakthroughs that you've experienced and seen? What do you include in there? How much are you talking about behavioral, personal, business breakthrough? Tell me more, more about breakthroughs. I think breakthroughs always start with the personal and then move out into the world. And so there's such a variety of possibilities of breakthroughs. You know, one of my fortes is definitely around emotions and teaching people how to actually come to more inner peace, how to reduce their inner struggle, and even how to have more awareness of what's actually going on in their consciousness, and then being able to release it. And that's huge because we haven't been taught how to deal with emotions, especially the difficult ones. We don't know how to deal with them. And most of the time, we're suppressing them. And that takes a huge amount of energy to do that. And once you free up that energy, you're able to put it to different things. It has an influence throughout the body. It has an influence on the physical level, obviously on the emotional level, on the mental level, and on your kind of larger consciousness, on your presence in the world. So everything starting from that, that's why I talk about leadership from the inside out or just consciousness from the inside out is starting from there. And I think it's the best leverage point. A lot of times... And I know you've written about this, Aviva, in your book, that you've seen where people actually focus their energies on trying to solve problems is not the root of the problem. 
and they avoid the root of the problem sometimes because they don't they don't recognize that it's there that that's not the root or because they haven't really thought clearly enough around it and they haven't been taught how to how to clearly think around problems or they're kind of avoiding it subconsciously because they actually don't know how to address the issue. <laughs> and so it becomes easier just to go, oh, yeah, it's this. I remember in your book you talked about collaboration, was the that often companies talk about collaboration is the problem. We don't have enough collaboration. And that you go down and you drill down with them. You want to talk about that a little bit, how you drill down? I do in a minute, but let me just capture three threads from the beginning of what you said there and ask you to say a little more because I want to know how do you help people deal with emotions so that they can free up energy, energy that's frozen or suppressed so that they can find inner peace. Talk to me about these three, okay. emotions, energy, and inner peace. Okay. So as I said, we are taught from everywhere to suppress our emotions. Our whole culture is about suppressing our emotions. In our families, we grow up learning to suppress pain. The whole family structure is often structured around suppressing the pain and avoiding the family pain. And so we get to be, well, as children or as adults, we don't know how to deal with these difficult emotions. And if you look like so at something like, you know, our spiritual teachings, even though many of us aren't necessarily even for people who aren't active in the church or anything like that, those teachings, those underlying Christian and Jewish teachings still influence us as a culture. And a lot of those talk about, they really put down negative emotions. And the problem with that is that as soon as you put something into a box and you mark it bad, you create a disassociation in your psyche, right? You have now created a disconnect from yourself. And I often use the ego to talk about it because it's a little bit easier to understand. So I always hear leaders talk about their ego. And if you listen for the next little while, when you go out and you listen to e people talk about their ego, you will hear them talking about it in this voice dripping with contempt. Now, the problem with that is you're talking about a part of yourself and you've created this construct called ego and you've taken and put certain concepts that you don't like or certain things about you that you don't like in this box called ego and then you push it away again you've created a disconnect from yourself and there's no way that you can create psychological cohesion and alignment integration when you've done that and so we have to begin to stop looking at these things as bad. There's no, have no more bad guys. There needs to be no more bad guys. And to bring these pieces back and to actually just listen to them. So and we'll jump back now to emotions. When you have a difficult emotion, it's not this bad thing. It's only bad when you suppress it. It's, but within it, there's a lot of information. And there's a lot of information that will help you guide your life and help you connect to your wisdom. If you learn how to listen to it, if you learn how to do what I call digesting it. And digesting it means that you take in the nutrients from it and you let go of the wastes. So you help leaders recognize those other parts, ego or bad emotions that they put in the shadow, that they distant distance from themselves, separated from themselves, as being 
at both that energy that in itself carries some information, some instruction, some learning value when you release it. And the second premise within that is that just the energy of keeping those parts separated or, or suppressed takes a huge amount of energetic or psychic or psychological toll on you because you now have two parts invested in hiding. The part that you hide and the part that's hiding, the part that you hide. And so you do that by, by what? By bringing that awareness, by mapping those processes, by demonstrating and modeling a way to include these voices. What are some of the methodologies that you bring to this integration or shadow work or building a, a greater sense of wholeness? How do you approach this with leaders? I have many different methodologies to do it, but let's talk about it the, the simplest one. So some things, I've heard it called the peace process, but basically it's a meditation where you look at something in your life. Maybe it's uh, something you're struggling with, or maybe it's something as a leader that you aspire to. So you rely, uh, you're aspiring to get to the next level somehow. So you take that idea and you sit quietly in basically a meditation and you notice the sensations in your body and you sit with them until and they'll move, you watch them change and you just experience them. Okay, that's a very simple meditation that will help you unblock. And the, the thing about it is it's, it's not as scary for people as dealing with emotions because you're just experiencing them as sensations. That's the other thing to realize is that we have to stuff all this stuff somewhere if we're not going to, if we're going to put it out of our consciousness. And one of the places we do that is in the body. And that has an impact. So seven to eight out of 10 of the senior executives in the companies that I work with are not likely to sit in meditation in the way you're describing. And so we have to actually approach this more in a conversational discovery way and let the information and the energy and the insight about those suppressed processes surface into the conversation rather than surface into their mindfulness through meditation. I have done, I do, and I do do that, of course, but sometimes I get really impatient <laughs> and I like, to, I like to work a little faster. And so, like I said, I have a lot of different methodologies that I use. One of the things about meditation too is to realize that it's to look at it differently from a much broader perspective. I think we've really lost what meditation is. And I think especially in the corporate mindfulness, one of the things is to realize is that what's taught in corporate mindfulness, it's talked about like it's there's one kind of meditation when in fact there are many, many kinds of meditations. And then I like to switch it from if you're going to have a practice, if you're going to put the time and energy into a practice, then you should flip it around and start with what your goals are. What do you actually want this to achieve? And then go back and choose the practices that are going to actually take you down that road of what you want to achieve. That's very rarely done. It's mostly kind of this passive exercise. So I think that's really important. Those two things, recognizing that it's not just one practice, this thing we call meditation, and each, each of those practices has their own pros and cons, their own strengths and limitations. 
So you want to be putting in together what you want. And then I think we've also kind of lost the juiciness of meditation in corporate mindfulness. And I think that was a, it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, when, when it was spread, it was made a secular practice. And that was good because it opened it up to different audiences. But it's what we lost in doing that. And what we lost is the idea of meditation being part of raising our consciousness and also connecting to something greater than ourselves. So we lost the real transformation power of meditation. Now, to get back to your question, I think when, when I'm working, the other thing I talk about is instead of meditation, I talk about brain states. I talk about being able to move fluidly through different brain states and using those brain states for peak experiences and for peak learning and so, for peak healing. So let, let me just hold you there because I'd, I'd like to uh, peak experiences, peak learning and peak healing. But before that, let, let, let's just rethread through some of what you already said, which is about meditation and clarify what, when you use the term meditation, what it means for you and what are the, the core practices that you teach to leaders and how do you differentiate between mindfulness and higher mindfulness? And I, I, I do understand very well and Paul, the distinction you made there about mindfulness taken out of the broader context of a spiritual or, or a religious or a developmental or a transformational effort where the mindfulness of the technique is there to facilitate a bigger endeavor. And once you take that out of that context, you simply are left with a tool that is, pow that is powerful, but the powerful tool without the intention, the ethical, theological, spiritual, religious, if there, if there is for anybody intent, carries only somewhat of a sterile, can carry somewhat of a sterile outcome. So say a little more about how do you differentiate mindfulness and higher mindfulness, and what is then the, the meditation that you bring? Well, like I said, it's, it's not, it's just recognizing that there, there isn't one single practice for one thing, right? And again, it's not like I, I promote a single practice because it depends what the goals are, you know, and I'm a believer in getting into much deeper goals. I'm a believer in, I think what you've talked about is that we are putting the things that matter most on the back burner in our lives, right? And so it's about bringing those things in onto the front burner, bringing the things that matter most onto the front burner. One of the theories in the environmental sector, in the environmental philosophy, is that our social and environmental issues are actually products or symptoms of the disconnect from the self. In other words, we see the warming of the planet's climate as an expression of the heating up of the human system. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, we see the increase of strife and conflict in the world as an expression of increasing conflict and disconnect in the human's own process in terms of the, the source of life and, and such. So I, 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 I think that's the line you are proposing, but say more where, where you were heading with that thought. Yeah, that's, that's it, Aviv. I mean, we, I don't, you know, I, I'm not putting exact parameters on it, but it's just that idea, right? And that 
How are we going to create outer peace if we cannot even create it within ourselves? And how are you going to lead a group of people without that, without actually consciously being on a conscious journey? How are you going to possibly be the best leader that you can be? And, you know, I think right now in today's world, one of the greatest gifts that a leader can give his or her people is to get them out of overwhelm because we were just we are just in overwhelm all over the place so to teach people how to get out of overwhelm and into empowerment and a key piece of that is around the emotions and we just haven't had the mentors or the people to teach how do you actually stop struggling against these inside even if you meditate and it takes it down it takes your nervous system calms your nervous system it still doesn't help you resolve those emotions describe to me Catherine what you mean and how do you describe the state of peace within peace of peace within peace yeah an inner peace inside a an ecosystem where you intentionally work to create a sense of peace what what do these because you started with saying that that was one of the issues that we if, if we are to lead in the best most optimal way you must we must become self-aware we must free up and, and release the energy within the And we must foster and nurture the state of peace. So say more about what, what do you associate with the idea of the state of peace? Let me give you an example from servant leadership. So you know, you're familiar with the concept of servant leadership, most leaders are. And I see some problems in the application of that. So one leader I talked to, one CEO, servant leadership was something he, he really aspired to and he really felt was important and one of his his employees was criticizing him one day or he felt he was criticizing him and he got really upset not at the criticism but he, he got upset at himself because because he got upset he got upset because he reacted to the criticism and he felt that a true leader would be able to stay objective and not have any re- reaction and you know all this stuff and I mean, first of all, we have disproven objectivity. It's not possible. And so we're having these struggles, these inner struggles that we need to just sort of, it's like we're struggling against invisible enemies. <laughs> And we need to, to find ways of not doing that, right? We need to, like if he, instead of struggling and putting himself down and kind of bashing himself down, he said if he just stopped and he just listened to what, oh, I just had a re- reaction. So what's that about, really? Why am I having a reaction? You know what? And then you're going to learn from it, right? And then you're not wasting that time because as soon as you get into that struggle, you're staying in that struggle forever. As soon as you've put that ego out of your, your system or that negative emotion, you are now destined to struggle with it for the rest of your life. And the only way you can stop is to bring it back in and reintegrate it. And then you get resolution. And you know you have resolution because I have clients who come up and they have the same, you know, something that they struggled with for 10 months. And they came and we worked through it with one of my methodologies. We worked through it. And, you know, in 15 minutes, it didn't, it just, it didn't have any emotional pull anymore. She could bring, up, bring it up and it would just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. And it would just go away. So it mm-hmm. didn't get into that, that mental loop or that emotional loop. Yeah. And the importance where leaders are concerned with freeing up 
and liberating their own mental and emotional and psychological processes is that unless you do so, you tend to create similar patterns around you. Yes. So to the degree that you're creating a pathology in your own processing of your experience with what you're suppressing, with what you're unable to harvest to useful learning and with what therefore become uh, either fragmented or stuck energy in your own process and effort to the degree that you create these, if you work with a group of people around you, you will tend to produce similar symptoms and pathologies in the people around you. Because whatever the leader does, they, they recreate in, in their ecosystem. And so you're right that when we work with leaders, helping them liberate themselves is one way to help the team in the organization get liberated. It is curious that for many, the work is not inside out. You and I, we may be approaching this naturally inside out. There are many people who this is not necessarily the first tendency or orientation in how they look at a challenge or at a problem. They will first look at it from the outside. And only when they hit the wall with their face straight head on, will they sometimes be alerted to the pain they've been suppressing inside. Um, That said, we can help leaders and teams work from the outside in as well. Because sometimes they will become more aware or alerted to the, the problem from the outside. They were promoted to a new responsibility. They are now leading a larger team. And all of a sudden, they get a feedback about them that they didn't get before. And they wake up one morning and they say, I can no longer be the jerk I used to be. <laughs> I, now, I now need to lead differently. There is a different magnifying glass and visibility to everything I do. And then they call somebody like me um, or, or like you, and, and they look to get some help. But... I'd say the journey, there is no one size fits every situation. You can make the journey from the inside out. You can also make the journey from the outside in. And strangely, more people make the journey from the outside in. Maybe not strange at all, because you could say that we were, through our formative years and education, childhood and such, we were trained to indeed be distant, distanced from the interior process and more respond to external cues. And, and therefore, people will often get the message from the outside rather than from the inside. For sure. And I, yeah, that's absolutely, of course, that stuff happens from the outside in and from the inside out. The, the outside in that I worry about or more concerned about in terms of leadership development is kind of the trait theory idea where somebody comes up with a list of must-have attributes as a leader and then goes in and says here's a list of 10 or 20 or 40 or whatever must-have attributes and everybody everybody in the leadership team tries to adopt those attributes and I just I think that makes you feel like a fake and it's just it's all based on willpower and I'm not a big believer in willpower I'm a big believer in using the opposite of willpower actually and actually 
coming into coming to things through natural ways. Yeah, traits and qualities development of virtuous development is a very important part of the portfolio, but it's one out of main four main approaches to leadership development. This is something I cover in on another episode where I discussed extensively the four quadrants of leadership development and how these were developed over the last 60 or 80 years. And, and they include two inside-out approaches. One is indeed the, the qualities of the traits development. The other is, is skill and, and capabilities development. And the two outside-in approaches to leadership development are the situational and the outcome-based approaches. So it's a lengthy discussion, perhaps for um, another time, but I'm, I'm making that reference if, if anybody wants to find that material on, on my site. Um, let me get back to the idea of wisdom and what you hinted to in, in the idea of helping people connect to their inner wisdom, to begin to see opportunities and, and choice points that perhaps were not visible uh, before. What are some um, additional approaches or techniques or strategies or examples that you can give to what it means for you to work with a leader and help them engage and release their inner wisdom and intuition? That's a big question <laughs> with so many facets to it. You know, okay, so we starting with the understanding of so-called negative emotions are not negative. I'll give you an example around envy from what I've noticed is, is, you know, envy is very much put down as a negative emotion and it's like something that you shouldn't have. And yet it's not that way. All it's telling you is that there's something that you want. There's something more that you want. And that's a very natural evolutionary urge that you want to have more. Sometimes people who are very successful feel guilty for wanting more, but it's, I think it's natural that we are here to grow. So when you feel envy, if you actually suppress it, what happens is become negative toward the person. You can actually become slightly abusive toward the person if you suppress that feeling of envy. And that's always where the problems happen is when you're suppressing. But when you let that in and you listen to it and say it's, oh, I don't know, the neighbors just got a new fancy car and you feel a moment, a pang of envy in it. And if you sit there and you think, oh, it's because of the car and I'd like one too. But if you take that deeper, if you begin to ask, oh, is it really like, what is it that the car gives me? What is it about that? What is it that I really want? And you take that down to the, to the depth of, to the deepest point, to its root of what it is you really want, you're probably going to get to something that's not of the physical world. That's a, a much deeper want. And that is something that you can begin to satisfy, that you can begin to, that you need to begin to address because it is something within you that's calling, that's at being, that's a want, that's a desire. Um, I think that is very important to play out in the leadership space, especially when you have leaders who, who have tendencies like taking over responsibility for others or who, you know, you know, are not keeping their own cups full, right? You need to be able to fill up your own cup first. And that's not with superficial stuff like spa trips and things. That's by 
learning to not be following other people's agendas, to not be not be in the idea of I'm a leadership, therefore I must or therefore I should, but being actually able to chart that path yourself. In this example that you offer, what, for example, could be the underlying information or intelligence that's latent and that can be accessed through the learning to embrace the emotion of envy and going deeper to recognize that it's probably not the car, but something else. What, where, for example, could this lead this inquiry? could lead to a lot of different things. And, and, and there may be more than one, actually. You know, that's, that's one of the things we, we mix up about emotions about, and about motivations is that you can have more than one at the same time. And it's really important for us to recognize that. But so it could be something like, you know, it could be anything from, my, from a security. It could be I want to be recognized in the world. I want to be seen. You know, I want to feel loved. But say it's, I want to be seen. You know, or say it's I want to be appreciated as a leader, right? You have this feeling that comes up. I want to be appreciated. Well, and we kind of often shove that aside as, oh, that's a bad thing. You know, I should be above that kind of thing. It's not. Be where it is. Listen to it. It's going to take you into somewhere. It's something that you need. We need to be loved and love in return. But we're also taught to look outside of ourselves for those things. So, for example, a sense of belongingness is really important, but we're taught to look out into the world. And so what happens is we look out into the world and we're trying to find this sense of belongingness. And it may not be completely unconscious or the sense of, you know, being appreciated or all those things. We're looking out to the world. And what we do is we try to manipulate people <laughs> so that we can feel appreciated. And what we actually need to do is go within ourselves and find that sense of belongingness within ourselves. Right? And right. that will put that tussle. So I don't know if that's gotten us to wisdom, but that's an aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, I can say that, for example, if you open this line of inquiry with, with somebody, like in the example of the car, and if you reveal with that person that the, the deeper impulse is the sense of, I want to be seen, I want to be recognized, the follow-up inquiry is what, what is it you actually want to be recognized for? Mm-hmm. What is it actually that you want to be seen for? What aspect, what capacity? And then the follow-up inquiry after that is do you recognize yourself? Do you appreciate those things about yourself? Because many of those things, when we drill down, deep, deep, deep down, in the formation of the psyche or the psychology, we they will often lead to power. Mm-hmm. We, we all crave all sorts of powers, power over oneself, something we crave. We, we crave to be able to have that sense and we, we crave as people to have influence and, and so on. And underlying the different kinds of power and how we manage those powers internally and therefore externally is so critical to the leadership work. I mean, the reason people want to climb up the corporate ladder is they project and believe that when they go up the ladder, they will have more power, only often to discover that when they go up the ladder, they don't actually have the power they wanted to have. 
until such time as they begin to indeed claim the intrinsic power of who they are, which, as you're su- suggesting, begins with the idea of knowledge of self, the self-knowledge being the perhaps the greatest power there is. And this inquiry is a way to accelerate dramatically the, that sense of, of growth and development and embracing of power, which leads us beautifully back to peak experiences and tell me more what do you mean when you talk about peak experiences and, and how do you help create peak experience peak experiences with people you work with okay before that I want to go back to power a little bit and I, I just want to go back to where you were d- drilling down with the question about the envy I think and once you get to that deep place as you can say to yourself oh I'm wanting this now what action can I take to create it for myself mm-hmm Right. So that's there's also the action part. There's not just the questioning, but what action can I take? So when you're talking about power, I think about it as inner power and or sorry, authentic power and outer power. So the outer power that we're taught is to have p- power over. And for most of the, the people that I'm working with who are. Who are interested in something bigger than the bottom line. I think there are a couple of different kinds of leaders. There are the ones who are looking for the kind of goodies of leadership, the power over the, you know, all the goodies that come with leadership. But that's not the, ten, the people who kind of have been around me. So they actually struggle with power because there's this thing, this idea of world in the world of this outer power, but then there's this authentic power and teaching people how to reclaim their inner power, how to reclaim that authentic power. That's unshakable. The other one, the outer power is very fear-based, very fear-based, very controlling. So lead from there, please, to um, peak experiences. To peak experiences. What what do you mean by peak experiences and how do you help create and choreograph these? What I found really interesting when I was, I always liked Maslow's work of the hierarchy of self-actualization, although now I look at it completely different. I don't actually believe in that hierarchy. But one of the things that he discovered when he was doing the research, I think in the 20s or 30s, was that people who were self-actualized or more self-actualized had more peak experiences, had more peak learning experiences and more more peak experiences. My gosh, there's a lot of different directions I can go on this. But peak experiences, I mean, I think a life that has more peak experiences is a good life. <laughs> and I think when we recognize that, and that, that the peak experience can be just a moment in time, mm-hmm. you know, a moment in time with someone when you make a connection, a moment in time when you're watching a sunset. For me, also it came in meditation because in when I was you know, studying meditation and doing different meditations, I had experiences where sometimes I would have these amazing peak ex- meditation experiences and the next meditation would be kind of like, eh. <laughs> and that's where I got really curious about Okay, how can I have more of those kind of peak meditation experiences? And how, where can I take this to consciously? What else can I do? And that's where I started to learn about the brain states and moving into different brain states. Flow, you know, when people are in flow, that's another very big peak experience, right? I'm also an artist, so when I get into 
flow as an artist or as a writer, that's a wonderful experience. So teaching people how to, you know, what flow is and what that means. And that's kind of a meditative experience. That's an act of meditation, right? So to, really to broaden this concept of meditation, but also to, to broaden the idea of peak experiences. When I'm doing workshops and things, I'll often give, I'll often use nature to have peak experiences because you can use it so well. And I think that our relationship to nature is not well recognized and how transformative that is. Because, because in, as an environmental consultant, I also worked a lot in the environmental education sector. I learned, I come with that background as well, and that that connection and that consciousness. Yeah, great. So uh, we could do uh, two or three more episodes just about peak experiences. Because first, there is a conversation that will focus on mapping the different kinds of peak experiences, and you started to. Uh, at least some of them, such as the experience of flow and flow state and, and various different kind of flow experiences. There is the peak experience that goes with a sense of alignment, being just very much in yourself, one with what you do. There is a third kind of peak experience that people will often more associate with a, a spiritual or a religious experience and perhaps what you alluded to in the meditation sense, which is a sense of communion with something much bigger than self. And right there, there are different, there is a whole variety of experiences that could be associated with that language. There is a fourth category of a whole different kind that we bring into the portfolio of big experiences where you talk about where you've been grappling with something for a very long time and all of a sudden you have a breakthrough in terms of finding the solution or resolving a piece of the puzzle that was not available before. And there is another subgroup within that, which is when you get those epiphany ideas that lead to creativity, that leads to innovation, mm-hmm. ultimately in, in what um, then you're able to, as a result, develop. The importance in my work of peak experience, of those different kind of peak experiences, is that they often are designed, well, that they often create an indelible etched memory. And so therefore there is a fifth category of peak experiences, different to the four I just mentioned, which is a choreographed peak experience. And Actually, there used to be a time when people ask me, what do you do? And I would say, well, what I actually do, I mean, I work with leadership teams to build and and create uh, new futures to their organization, to their business, including uh, their innovation strategies and and so on. But what I actually do, I, I said was, I choreograph transformational big experiences. And one of the ways that I do this in the design of the work is that I increase by creating layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of process in, let's say we are two or three or four days in a workshop. I no longer do four days workshop. 
but mostly two, two and a half, three days workshop, we, we layer the process design and the choreography is, is designed to increase the interior awareness and conductivity in people that there is sense of aliveness and awareness for themselves, for what matters most to them, and increase the awareness and the sense of aliveness in the collective space. And we alternate the interior and the exterior. And, and as we do that, when we then place challenges or needs or requirements or opportunities for the team, and we do so with specific applying specific behavioral modalities, people are able to sometimes achieve three months or six months leap in a matter of few hours or, or a day or two because of what they've been able to break through in themselves, because of the energy that got released, because of how the, the interior personal liberation took place inside a collective and how that, when it occurs with one person, chain reacts around the room and what happens when one person models a breakthrough and how that then becomes a, um, it's not a good time to use the, the term virus, but an energetic activation that is chain reacting throughout the people in, in the room. And what then happens is they get to experience themselves together in a whole new level of operation, higher level of coherence, higher level of collective listening and collective intelligence. And then comes here a very important part about the inquiry about peak experiences, which is you cannot sustain that level when you go back to your life and to the office and such. So this is where we have to place the awareness that the peak experience that I choreograph and design for them is there to etch an indelible memory that will act in them as, a, as an interior compass, something they can aspire to, remembering and acknowledging that we are never going to be able to sustain the, the altered or the advanced or the high functionality, high functioning state at, at its optimum level all the time. What we are able to do is we're able to create a personal and a collective muscle memory that then acts for us individually and collectively as a North Star or as a gravitational pull rather energetically. And then we also have another very important piece of the work, which is we can actually use the contraction. So consider that a peak experience is an expanded state. There is a contraction that occurs. The contraction is not actually bad. The contraction is if used in a developmental context, serves another purpose, it is there to make the rest of you, the other layers in your process, safer or to update those such that they, are, they offer better alignment to that advanced altered peak experience you just developed. But this is an important thing, people, when I used to do more of the personal growth, personal development workshop, and you lead people to a point of Profound, profound sense of alignment and awareness about themselves, their lives, their purpose, their meaning here. Why are they here in this life and how can they um, harvest the storyline of their life in 
context of an updated appreciation of themselves and their purpose and meaning, people would often ask at the end of a, when I use that four or five day process, how can I maintain this? And the answer is you don't need to, and you can't. What you must do is crystallize those elements of the experience that you can then make integral to your new updated operating system. That's what you need. You, you actually went into the peak experience to download some key elements, some key algorithms in your updating, now updated operating system such that you can operate from a, a new place, a new level, but don't think that you need to sustain that level of functionality all the time, 24-7, 365 days a year, we are human beings. We have the in-breath and the out-breath. We have the uptime and the downtime. And actually part of a safely evolving human is one where we enable those cycles of uptime and downtime, peak experience and its expansiveness and the contraction from that experience all to be part of the circadian rhythm, if I can borrow that term, of a developing life. I think that's true. But there is a part where you do, I mean, the more peak experiences you have, you raise the consciousness. You may not be, a, may not notice it as such because what happens is if you've got kind of this space here and you've got, you know, you're, you're down, up, down, up, down, up, that's normal human living, all of a sudden the whole thing kind of moves up to here. So now you're not getting the low as, as you're still getting some lows, but you're not getting the low, low like you were. You know, that's a new level of consciousness, right? That's exactly and you still, right. but you're not going to be, you're going to be still, there's going to be moments or, and you know, that's what I talk about with the brain states is that ability to be able to move, to be able to take these very natural states and make them more profound and be able to use them consciously for peak experiences, but also for peak learning, peak healing, peak thinking, you know, to, to be able to move more successfully amongst those states and yes. use them and harness them. Yes. So there are two things that emerge from what you're saying. The first is what I call the, the bull and bear market principle. And the, the idea there is that when I ask people, what's the marker? of your development state, it is always not the high point you get to, but the place below which you will not go. So you're absolutely right. When you do a development journey, you will follow a trace like an equity or, or any item in the market where it doesn't just make higher highs, it makes higher lows because the true measure of a bull market is not that you make higher highs, but that you make higher lows. As long as you didn't break a lower point, that becomes the flaw. That becomes the standard below which you don't go. So that's awareness one about the bull market principle and how it relates to development. And, and oh, by the way, to relationships as well. Because when you have difficult relationships and you're trying to work through a difficult relationship, the, the measure and the test of progress is not what the highest point you get to experience on a Thursday, Friday evening, or any other day of the week, but what is the low point you will not go below? Mm -hmm. So I agree with, with that point. The second fascinating 
awareness from what you're describing is encouraging people to transfer their peak experiences from one aspect of their life, from one narrow lane to the 360 degrees, the totality, the holistic equation of their life. I became very interested and fascinated by this many years ago when I studied, because I used to be myself a, a long distance runner and as a boy I was the Israeli champion, which is a whole other story because I got into long, long distance running to heal my heart when I was even too young to understand it. It was more instinctual. But I then followed with great passion and interest the Olympics and the great athletes. And when I was a boy and running, it was the time of the Munich Olympics and the last severe and the Olympic champion in the 5 and 10K, what happened for him in the 10K run was that he stumbled because he hit somebody in um, someone else's foot and he fell. And he picked himself up and it took him another round to rejoin the lead group and he proceeded wow. to win the, um, the gold medal. I mean, that, if there is a peak experience, that was a peak experience. But then I became very interested in this strange phenomenon, which was that you've had many Olympic champions who after they retire, you could almost break them into two groups. Those that were able to transfer their success and move into a new space, and those that experienced a sense of a void. And in, in, in essence, they had nothing else to wake up in the morning to because perhaps from age eight or nine or 11, through to their mid-20s. All they did was dream, sleep, eat, imagine, think the next Olympics. You know, the Michael Phelps, the Katie Ledecky of the swimming pool and, and in other areas too. And, and so many of those people, they've created such a profound set of experiences, but what they've not done, they've not developed the inner formation whereby they're able to transfer the sense of meaning and focus and discipline and rigor such that when they retired from their Olympic pursuit, perhaps with more gold medals than anybody else, in the case of Michael Phelps, as, as is in the case of others, and only then do they begin to inquire, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Where can I give back? How can I now serve something bigger or if not bigger in terms of personal accomplishment, bigger in terms of service and inspiration to others? And that inquiry then leads some of them to either become a motivational speaker or go into business. In essence, create for themselves a new goal, a new purpose that will fuel the next 40 or 50 or 60 years of, of their life. And there are just so many stories of people that struggled, Catherine, enormously to find that next thing. And, and I see this in, adjacent, in adjacency to also people in leadership, some that mm -hmm. all their life they wanted to become the CEO, they wanted to get to that corner office or get to that pinnacle of power, only to when they get there, either mess it up on ethical issue or another kind of issue 
or experience a health crisis and a breakdown. And I think this entire story relates to where you started because unless you you go into this journey and at some point choose to integrate the other parts of your life. Well, disconnect from yourself, right? Yeah. That's about disconnect from yourself, those people. And it happens in the same thing. You can have a lot of outer success, but it's very disconnected. And there comes a point where it's like, why isn't this filling me up? Or you, you see a lot of leaders get to the top and then crash down. Because you get off path, you get out of integration with yourself, not in one big swoop, but little bit by little bit, by little bit, until you're not in integrity with your values anymore, until you've lost yourself. If you were to ask today by a younger you, you when you were in your 20s, what advice would you give back to your younger you in terms of your career. And, and I'm asking this with the mindfulness of the younger people in the workforce, people in their 20s and their 30s. What would you advise? What, what uh, skills, capabilities, what, what uh, should they focus on? What should they develop? What would you have you focus more on when you were entering the workforce? You know, I, th I think the journey of self-trust because it takes, you know, I had an underactive thyroid and I was on medication for 15 years. And there was a point where the kind of meditation crashed or I crashed off and it stopped working. Um, I couldn't, it wasn't working anymore. I went to the doctors. They just tried to put me back on it. I was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And one of them said, well, better the devil, you know. <laughs> and I thought, you went through all those years of medical school and that's all the advice you can give me? Better the devil, you know? It's like, no, thank you. I've done that devil. I'm ready to move on to at least new devil. So I had to go kind of the journey alone. And I'm not on any medication anymore. And my health is better than it was when I was on that medication for all those years. I don't have things like brain fog or anything anymore. And that was really a journey of intuition and self-trust and I think that piece of learning to listen to the self of learning that that we're taught to look outside of ourselves for everything and it's like that's not it it's it's looking inside that really what if there is a purpose this life I would say it's to you know to evolve ourselves that what we have to give comes from us and the only way we can give as much as we have is to develop ourselves I talk about that full cup. Most of us are giving from a very depleted cup, and so we only have a trickle to give. I think we're meant to fill that cup up and give from overflow. We have to do that as a society. We have to learn to do that. Thank you, Catherine, for this exploration Thank with you. you today. As we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? Well, we're in a... We're in a whole new space of the world is on pause right now. <laughs> Almost the entire world is kind of on a pause, except the, emerge, the people working for the essential services. But many are on a pause. And I would say, use it wisely. Use it wisely. Don't, a, a life without reflection isn't, isn't much of a life. It's not a, certainly not an empowered life. Indeed. Indeed, use this reset, use this pause to access your greater power and sense of what matters most to you. And yeah, enjoy. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.